there's a couple of things that I would stress. One is most people don't go through the process of setting up a capability brief with them. Absolutely. One of the first things you should do is a capability brief. Once you identify who's buying what you sell, which is really easy to do. There's a lot of free software from usaspending.gov to sam.gov. You can go in the databanks and find exactly who's buying it. The, the contracting officer names, you can reach out to these people and request a capability brief. That's the number one thing. Number two, Welcome to the Real Construction Owners Podcast, where we interview real construction owners and the leaders within our industry who help us succeed. Today, we have a very special guest, Michael Lejeune, the owner of Game Changers for Government Contractors, as well as a best-selling author. You're going to want to listen closely if you want to learn more of government contracts and how they can benefit you. Stay tuned. What's up, Michael? How you doing today, buddy? Hey, doing great, man. Glad to be here. Man, thanks for being on this call. And I know that we're going to dive into some deep stuff today about government contracts and processes and profits. And if you're a contractor or if you're somebody who is intrigued about government contracts, drop in the comments below where you're listening in from and let us know what exactly you want to know. But before we go any further, Michael, tell us your story. How did you get into government contracts? What were you doing before of all this? Sure. Well, when I started in government contracts, uh, if I go back to the beginning, I started because I was in the army. And when I was in the army, I noticed that everybody around me was a government contractor. I was at Fort Hood working in the Force 21 program. And when you're doing that, there's more government contractors than there are soldiers. And so I watched their transition from soldier to contractor. And, you know, they were poor and barely making it. Next thing I know, they're driving brand new cars and, you know, wearing nice clothes and enjoying life a little bit. And I thought, you know what, this is a pretty nice life. Let me look into this. And so I started looking in, I'm like, it's actually pretty fun. There's a lot of stuff to do. You get to travel, you can do all these cool things. And so I made a transition right out of, you know, the uniform, right into government contracting. I was primarily focused in the software space at the time. And then um, very quickly went through kind of this journey where I, I was on the road to getting my degree, but then I kind of got sidetracked by sales and kind of the mystique around that. And so really like doing the sales side of it, working directly with the, uh, the contractors as well as the, the government folks. And so that's really what got my start. And and I was kind of thrown into the deep end where nobody really knew what we were doing. So we all had to figure it out. And I like research and that sort of thing. And uh, that was about 20 years ago that I, I started in that space. And about five years after that, I started working with my own clients. So I started my own business, working with my own clients. And I've been doing that for about 15 years now. So That's awesome. I know that you have, are an authority figure within the government contract space. And people who are listening in are primarily contractors and they want to know how to win these contracts. What are the benefits? You know, what are the upsides? What are the risks? Can you elaborate from your experience, some of your clients, like who, what, what, what are some of the things they've done in the construction space with government contract? Yeah. You know, and it really, it's almost market agnostic. So regardless of whether you sell construction or software or anything else, 
the basic process is the same. And I think this is the area that trips up everybody. Everybody thinks that when you get in, you try and fill out these certifications for your small business, your economically disadvantaged, your WOSB, your fill in the blank, whatever it is. And if you do that, the government's just going to hand you contracts. And that's not how it works. The, the way that every company that I've ever worked with thrives is by doing one thing. They get to know the customer and they work what I call pre-acquisition, where the customer's thinking about some things they want to do, they want to buy, but they have not put it out on the market yet. If you get in this business, and I don't, again, I don't care what you sell. If you get in this business and you just go on sam.gov and hunt for opportunities all day, the odds are you're only going to win maybe 5% of those opportunities. And the reason behind that is the fact that all of those opportunities are already wired for somebody else. You know, there's people that have been working pre-acquisition for two, three, four years prior to those opportunities coming out. And so the government's been talking to them a really long time. So if you really want to win, you've got to focus on the pre-acquisition phase, which means before it hits the market. And that's the number one thing that most people skip. They don't get to learn the customer. They don't learn anything about what their problems are, their challenges are, or what their upcoming contracts are. Because that's another thing. If you are getting to know the customer, you will very quickly identify that they have a bunch of contract vehicles that they regularly buy off of. You'll find out that they have contracts that are coming up for recompete. And then none of this stuff is a surprise to you because I guarantee you, if you find a multi-million dollar contract, like say today, and it's due, the proposal's due in two or three weeks, you're not gonna even have the time to pull together the resources to write the RFP if you just found out about this thing. So I can't stress enough how important pre-acquisition, getting to know the customer, getting to know what's going on in their world, how important that is to winning any contract. I love that. That's so true. You know, there's a section within the government realm that's called the sources thought. And mm -hmm. that's when the government, well, I better yet, you're the expert. Why don't you tell yeah. our audience what does sources sought mean and why, how can they use that to their advantage? Well, and there's, and there's actually two things. So we have the sources sought, which means the government is actually still in a pre-acquisition mode, but they are actually interested in buying. They want to buy something and they're looking for sources because they're not sure if there's anybody out there. So that's, that's one. The other thing is called an RFI, a request for information. And a request for information is when the government is pretty sure they want to buy, but they're not really trying to commit to anything. They're trying to see what is out there in the market, what their options are. And that's a market research phase. You have more opportunity in an RFI stage than a source of sought one to actually influence the acquisition. So in the RFI stage, you can actually tell the government, hey, I know you're looking for 13 requirements in this new building you want to build, but here are two things you're not thinking of. You're not considering these couple of things that you should be, and these could be game changers for this project. So I'd highly recommend you consider A, B, C, D, whatever, and you can help influence the acquisition. You can also tell them, hey, because there's enough companies that are SDVOSB or HubZone or whatever it is, this should come out hub zone. It should come out under this NAICS code. It should come out 
uh, full and open or whatever it right may be. You get to influence the acquisition, which is really, really important. Now, the hard part about an RFI is it's usually months, if not years before an acquisition comes out. So a lot of people don't want to mess around with it, but it's really important in the grand scheme of actually influencing it. On the sources sought side, a lot of times that one's a little bit closer. So like if they put out a sources sought, they may 30 days, 60 days later, just buy the thing, whatever it is that they said, hey, I wanted, we need a new building or, or a new whatever, you know, like a, a smaller building, not like a, you know, 20 story building or something like that, but they need something small. They ask about the sources sought, and then they may go ahead and, and move forward with a purchase. So it's a little bit different on those two, but you can still use the sources sought to influence as well. So. I love that. And, you know, when I read your book, I think it was Game Changers, that I've just like blown away because you said something that startled the heck out of me. You said that $20 billion does not get set aside to small businesses because small businesses don't raise their hand during the source of sod opportunity and say, hey, I want to bid that. Can you elaborate? Yeah. And, and that's a, a really common thing is, and it's a frustration for contracting officers where they'll put out these RFIs and sources sought and no one will respond or one company will respond. And then guess what happens? They wind up putting it out full and open and then anybody compete or they just cancel it altogether. They may say, oh, well, there's zero interest in the market. So instead of putting out this $2 million contract, we're just going to cancel it and move on to the next thing on our plate. Because one of the things people don't realize is over the last 20 years, the contracting officer pool has shrunk significantly. We've lost probably 50, 60% of our contracting officers over the last 20 years, and they aren't getting replenished. But the budget, if you've watched anything with the, the economy, the budgets continue to exponentially grow. So that means there's you know double, if not triple, the amount of transactions that were going on 20 years ago and there's half the staff. So if you're not going to respond to something like that, they're going to move on to where there is interest and they're going to move on that. And then the other part of that is if you're not responding to it as a small business and saying, hey, this should be small, it should be hub zone, it should be 8A, it should be Native American, whatever the, the, you know, the socioeconomic status is, at the end of the day, if they have to procure it, they wind up going full and open because nobody has influenced them along the way. You know, it's interesting you say that because even if you don't have a set aside status, you can still win contracts. Absolutely. Right. I mean, as long as you're, it's a numbers game. There's two approaches. What are the two approaches in your perspective for a contractor? A one getting to the customer and or just throwing a wide net and throwing in a bunch of bids. Can you elaborate that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the numbers game, I call it the brute force method is the numbers game on our side. And, you know, you can eventually win something using the brute force method, but it's so random um, that I just, I don't recommend it. You know, there's, there's just, when I look at people and I say, Hey, so how many RFPs are you responding to a month? And then how many are you winning? They're like, well, I'm responding to 10 or 12 and we typically don't win any. <laughs> cool. How long can you do that? right? It's, it's very time intensive to write proposals and do all those sort of things. Now, it doesn't mean you have to know the customer every single time, because if you can be really competitive in the market and you're with your pricing, with the value you provide, you can go in and just respond to RFPs 
and you can win some of those, but you've got to be really competitive. And the best thing is if you're going to do that, to have some teaming partners and have teaming partners that know the customer. So if you don't know the customer, someone on your team needs to know the customer. And that's a great situation to be in because they likely have the past performance to do the work because that's what trips up a lot of people is they go and respond to these, uh, these RFPs and it asks for specific past performance with that government agency or the government in general, and you don't have it. So that's where a teaming partner comes in really handy where, you know, that can fill a huge gap for a lot of people. One of the benefits is like, I mean, I won about just shy of a million dollars last year in government con construction contracts, and it was very profitable. And I love that we can use subcontractors' recent mm -hmm. and relevant experiences within our yep. own bid. And I did the brute force method. I did not do the other method, which was get to know your client and really, you know, nurture that. I just went out and bid stuff from Alaska to Florida to yeah. Hawaii to New York and won deals all over and made, had fun, made a lot of money. But I see the benefit of what you're saying on how you want to get to know your customer. And can you share with our audience a tactic that they could do to stay on top of the mind of that CEO? Something mm -hmm. they could do every 40 days or 50 or 60 yeah. days to where that CEO is like, oh yeah, I need to reach out to this person. Forgive them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and let me go back for a minute there. You know, what you did was not the norm. It's not the norm to be successful using the brute force method. It does work occasionally, but it's not the norm. And when you're going to do it, then the volume of the brute force is what's really going to help most people win, or they're just the knowledge of whatever that type of project is. That's where they're, they're typically going to do it. The other thing in the construction space that's really interesting where the brute force method does sometimes come into effect is when people are not bidding on things. Um, we've got some guys down in Austin, Texas, that they do, they've developed this software for construction companies where they go out and look at RFPs and based on the data, they can tell how many bidders are going to be on it. And their goal is always to be the only bidder on a project where they're like, hey, the odds are no one's going to bid on this but us. And if that's the case, we can raise our margins and we can win this and we may not know the customer, but you've got to have the right tools to be able to do that, in, in my opinion. Um, when it comes to staying top of mind from contracting officers, there's a couple of things that I would stress. One is most people don't go through the process of setting up a capability brief with them. Absolutely. One of the first things you should do is a capability brief. Once you identify who's buying what you sell, which is really easy to do. There's a lot of free software from usaspending.gov to sam.gov. You can go in the databanks and find exactly who's buying it, the, the contracting officer names. You can reach out to these people and request a capability brief. That's the number one thing. Number two, and, and this one is, I don't know why people are not getting this. I've been pounding this drum for a long time. Connect with them on LinkedIn and, and stay connected there watch the stuff they post, go check your contracting officer's posts, reply to those posts, add value to those posts. You know, for me, I would rather start there on social media and build a relationship for a month or two before I even call to request that capability brief. Because if I do, I'm no longer Mike calling from God knows where. I'm, oh yeah, Mike from LinkedIn, I know you. You know, I'm that guy now. And it's just so much easier to do that. So, so those are just two things that are real quick and easy to do 
And then the third one is to get involved with your small business offices for those agencies, as well as the Office of Small Disadvantaged Business if, if you qualify for one of those statuses. And so if you get involved with them and ask them for assistance as well of, hey, I'm already talking to Sue Smith in this office because she buys what I sell. Is there anyone else in your agency that I should be talking? Can I come do a capabilities brief with you? And so once you're connected to more people in the agency, not just the CEO, then you have more reasons to reach out to people. The I'll, I'll give one more quick one here is find out yes, who the PM let's is. Hear it, let's hear it, dude. Let's hear it. Yeah, like who's the PM on this stuff? Like, you know, whether it, it is the program or project manager, you want both of those people. Connect with those people because guess what? They're the major influencer for the contracting office. Contracting officer is almost like an accountant. They have a bunch of money and they're trying to spend it. They don't necessarily care where they spend it, but there's a program and a project manager somewhere that are like, hey, these are the things that I need and why I need them to do this project. Connect with those people, get to know who they are. Yeah, these, these project managers or facility managers, they're the one with the problem and they want the yeah. problem fixed. So they yeah. go to the CEO and say, hey, I got this problem. And then the CEO is the one who puts it on the street. So if you can connect with that facility guy or project guy, then you have a better chance of winning the deal. Love yeah, it. And, yeah Love and, it. and I've, I've been in discussions where I'm sitting there with the program manager and we're talking about something and they bring in the CEO to say, hey, I wanted to introduce you who we're going to be working to or working with, you know, that type, that type of thing. Now, it in my situations, I've often been the guy that has a solution that nobody else has. And that's a great place to be in. But even if you're not, when you're getting to know those people and you're helping them solve problems, that's the game changer for them. And if you can't find those people by just, you know, another brute force method of just making phone calls and things, again, go back to LinkedIn. A lot of people that I work with in government are all on LinkedIn. You can search project, program manager, all that kind of stuff. You can put in other keywords. Uh, if there's a specific contract and you can find those people on LinkedIn all the time and connect with them right there. And if you could, in summary, how do we find that capability brief? What website, what exactly do we do? So for uh, to build a capability brief, correct. Is that the question? So the capability brief, and here's here's the beauty of it. It's really just an expanded version of your capability statement, and everybody has that one page capability statement. If you don't have one of those, you can go on one of our websites, federal-access.com, sign up for a free account, and I believe we have four different templates that you can choose from for your capability statement. And all it is is it's a corporate overview. It's a little bit about what your company does. You've got your NAICS codes, PSC codes, your SAM UEI is on there, some past performance logos maybe, and any other certifications and things like that. And all you're doing is putting that into PowerPoint and going over that with them. So it you're talking about a seven, eight minute presentation, maybe 10 minute presentation that you can do with them to tell them about your capabilities. But that's probably the least important part of the capability brief. The most important part is when you get to the end and you start asking them questions. So, so tell me about what projects are coming up at the agency that I should be aware of. Tell me where you're going to be, which events that you're hosting or you're speaking at, things like what events do you go that I should go to? And you just start asking them questions about how they buy what you sell. And that's really one of the most important parts of that brief. Some good stuff right there. I 
I'm, and I've been a brute kind of just dialing for dollars kind of businessman and yeah. have success, but I'm, I'm going to implement some of these strategies that I'm learning from you today. And I'm curious, is it possible to do those uh, capability briefs over a Zoom if somebody lives far away and they can't go into the Absolutely. office? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I have, I've only sort of lived in a hotel in DC for two years while I was working there. I was commuting to DC, but for the most part, I've never lived near my clients. I've always lived hundreds of miles from my clients. So I've always done it over the phone. Didn't before there was zoom and all that kind of stuff. You're just talking to them over the phone and saying, Hey, let me walk you through this. And now we've got zoom and all these things. I just did a podcast. I think we put it out this week called on demand capability briefs, where let's say you can't get a hold of the contracting officer for whatever reason, they will not return your phone call, record it, simply record it, drop it in a software like Loom, where as soon as they go and click the link, you'll know they watched it or they watched all of it or whatever it is like that. And then you can follow up. Hey, you know, Hey, Sean, I saw you, uh, you, we finally watched the capabilities brief. I hope you got a lot out of it. I, you know, let's connect to answer some questions, that sort of thing. So um, there's a lot of different ways you can get to them uh, now with all the technology we have. So I love that. Now I'm curious on your side of the thing, you do technology, I do construction, but there's so many similarities, I'm sure, mm -hmm. like when it comes to government contracts, is there ever a scenario where the government says your, your bid is too high? Because in our section, there is, we hear that often and there's a way around mm -hmm. it. Have you ever come across that? And yeah. You know, typically when uh, when that's happening, whether it's software or services, um, a lot of times what the government will do is they'll go through the down select process, right? You'll, you'll hear that a lot of times where, hey, we selected these three companies. And what it really means is these are the three closest one in price. And they usually say this, this phrase, we want you to give us your best and final offer. That's kind of what you'll you'll typically hear around that. And when you hear, give us your best and final offer, it doesn't mean you have to actually change your price. It just means you need to justify your price. And oh, if, you can, really? if you can, yeah, if you can do that really well, you don't have to change your pricing at all and you can still win. Most people don't understand their pricing. It, that's just the way it is. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. Most people don't understand how they get to that bottom line. They just put some numbers in and they think, oh, let's multiply it by one point, I don't know, 1.7, you know, and then if that doesn't work next time, we'll multiply it by 1.6, you know, <laughs> and then we'll, we'll keep playing with that till we get the right number. But if you know your numbers and you are looking at the historical data, like using tools like calc.gov and going back and looking at past contracts, because you can go back and look at all these past contracts and things and find out what's the government paying for this. You can go look at GSA schedules of your competitors. What's the government paying for this stuff? And once you know that, and you really understand the pricing, you can come in and justify your pricing and not have to budge most of the time, so. You know, it's true that you said that because I got a contract in Galveston, Texas once uh, to change up like some cooling, cooling parts for a rusty old AC unit. Mm -hmm. And they said, hey, your price is too high. And we just justified it really good. And it was like 30 grand or something. And they said, OK, you're right. And we didn't change yeah. our price. And they yeah. gave us the contract. 
Now, I am curious, let's go a little bit further. And since you're doing the service side, I'm doing, I'm sorry, the software side, I'm doing the service construction side. Do you ever come across a situation where they're like, hey, you have to have a local office? And if so, how do you overcome that? Um, you know, I don't think I have ever had a client tell us that. You know, I know I've, I've seen clients run through situations where they're like, hey, they went with these guys because there's an office that's located five miles outside of the base. And, you know, proximity was really important to them. But most of the time, I don't see that as an issue. We have a guy who within our uh, course that I teach, he does number 75 million a year. And he just basically has an office out of his subcontractors uh, yep. building. Yeah. He hires I, a local sub. Yep. It's not hard. I mean, you know, that, that's the thing that I would say for most contractors, again, regardless of what you sell, is it's not hard to fix the problems that the government says is, hey, this is a roadblock to you doing business with us. It's usually not hard. Now, when you get into like bonding and certain things, so some of those can be a challenge. I mean, they can all be solved. I, I would say the biggest challenge for a lot of newbie government contractors is that first 60, 90 days when you win a new contract and you've got to front load all the cash and wait on those invoices to get paid, that's probably one of the biggest challenges for most government contractors when you're just getting started. Because most people aren't sitting on, you know, 2 million in cash. You know, that's just not the way it is for a lot of people. And so having to finance that stuff is often a challenge. And that's why I'm, I usually tell people, look, start small. You don't have to go do the $10 million deal right out of the gate. In fact, the government's probably not going to give you a $10 million contract out of the gate. You know, they're going to want to start you smaller than that. And so start small, gain that past performance, and then you can overcome that cash by, you know, starting to stockpile cash and get credit and different things like that. So beautifully said, I teach the same thing to the people to follow me, start small, get your past performance, up, get a reputation and then go yep. after the. 250 to 500 to yeah. 500 to a million, yeah. but don't and, shoot out the gate for the big ones right out the yeah. gate. And, and don't be afraid to team with a larger company that has the cash, you know, don't be afraid to team with them. You know, that's again, people look at teaming as a bad thing. And it's like, it, it's only a bad thing if you do it poorly. So I want to ask you about that because I have a, a hub zone, a native American set aside and he sees my skill set as a value add he's like hey you're really good at putting in the bids you're really good at the relationships yep what are the steps for somebody like myself that wants to uh turn in bids for a hub zone 8a and how could i be the subcontractor to get my own past performance up? well it, it's really simple i mean once you've identified a company that wants to work with you and likes working with you then you just need to identify the agencies you want to work with and once you identify those agencies you want to work with, typically you just put a teaming agreement in place. And, and look, here's the deal about a teaming agreement. Not everybody's going to tell you the truth about this. A teaming agreement is really only worth the paper it's written on. It's, it's more of like a letter of understanding between your two companies. People don't have to actually abide by it. I mean, you're never going to win an argument in court with a teaming agreement. It's just not going to happen. It's not a contract. But it is an understanding between you and that company that you together are going to go and bid on an opportunity and you're going to do part of the work. They're going to do the other part of the work. And then once you win, then there's a teaming a subcontractor agreement that usually gets put in place after that. And so let's say you, you put in a bid 
and the government accepts it, the next stage is they put this con subcontractor agreement in place with you. And hopefully it mirrors your teaming agreement. They don't come back and negotiate with you. Um, but but that's kind of the, the process on that. So just find an organ, uh, an RFP you want to chase or an agency you want to do work with and um, and put together that teaming arrangement. So Love that. Now, this is going to be a little bit more technical. And, you know, you just mentioned some valuable insights that I want to talk about in just a little bit. But on occasion, we come across the situation where you have to go to the pre-con meeting or you have to have a mandatory site visit. There are strategies that I know to do, but I was wondering if you knew any strategies of how to avoid that pre-con or how to avoid an actual in-person mandatory site visit. Uh, do you have any strategies for that? You're breaking up a little bit. So are you talking about like the industry day type of things or? No, no, I'm talking about um, there's pre-construction meetings and mm -hmm. they maybe they have those inside the technology world. But like right when you get the contract, you have to have a pre-con in person. And I was wondering if you had a tactic to avoid having to go in person for a mandatory pre-con meeting. So almost everybody that I do business with uh, has told me people are very willing to, to put people on Zoom or whatever it may be, unless you're in the intelligence community where, you know, they're just not going to do that. Um, almost everybody that I know of is doing, they're dialing in. So you've got some people on the phone, some people on Zoom. Uh, it doesn't have to be an in-person thing. It and would you, say be requested. Same, would, you, would you say the same for a, a, a mandatory site visit? Just Just go through Zoom or do it? like right do it on a zoom car or technology yeah call. i i probably wouldn't recommend that you know to to me like i i think if if there is a a site visit an industry day whatever you want to call them and and they're bringing you through i would probably have somebody on a plane to go do that so it, it's just one of those things there are things that you will gain from that that you won't get from a zoom and look i used to do that back in the day where i could have hopped on the phone and talked with a client but I would say to them, look, I'm going to be in your area on, you know, from Wednesday to Thursday, what day can I come and chat with you? Like if I had a really hard time uh, getting a hold of a contracting officer and they'd say, uh, you know, Tuesday at two o'clock, I'm like, great, book a flight. <laughs> you know, I like, I didn't have a flight book, but, uh, you know, I was planning on coming as soon as you gave me a date. And that's the only reason I'll go and go talk to them. Cause there's some things that just, when you can't get it to work, where a face-to-face -face is the game changer, you know, where they actually get to see you and like you and go, yeah, I do want to move forward with this company. Now for, for construction, they're using a prompt payment act. There's been several contracts that I've won where it was zero money out of my pocket. And I worked at a deal where the subcontractor funded and floated and I've promise that I paid them the moment I got paid. Mm -hmm. Is that something that can happen in your side, technology side? Uh, we don't see it near as often. So it, it doesn't happen near as often. I mean, the, the most of the time in my side, and again, remember, I'm, I'm not just in the software space. We have a lot of service-based, you know, the, the most common phrase is butts in seats, right? We have a lot of work that happens that way. We have a lot of product stuff that gets delivered. And the most common payment method is, you know, net 30. But when you're thinking net 30, initially it's net 60, right? Because you go 30 days, you submit an invoice, and then you wait 30 days. So that first check is going to take somewhere around 60 days from the day you start work or the day you deliver. 
So if you're delivering product and it takes you a month to deliver that first bit, and then you've got an invoice, now you're closer to 90 days on getting that first payment. Um, and so that that's where having really good vendor relationships come in because we have a lot of product people. And depending on who the vendor is, some will say, well, you've got to pay half of that up front. You know, I don't care what the order is. You got to pay half up front. And some will say, oh, it's a contract with the VA. We totally get it. You're on net 30. We're on net 30 with you once you get it. No problem. So. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like you want to pay for something that hasn't even been shipped yet. You know, yeah. it could get lost along the way. That's why good insurance is there. Yeah. So let's say let's say our contractor gets a contract. What and he has a subcontractor who's going to do the work in Ohio. Can you determine or tell us how important having a solid subcontract agreement uh, is, and what are some key things that should be in the subcontract agreement? Yeah, I, I think having a, a really good agreement is the difference usually between success and failure a lot of times because you know in in the construction space, and this is nothing against construction. It's just it's very notorious for a lot of disagreements on what was said, right? Like, hey, you know, I, I thought you were going to use this kind of crown molding here instead of this, or I thought we were getting, I, you know, that flooring doesn't look like what I ordered, you know, and oh yeah, it is. You know, there's a lot of different little things that can come up. And so having everything written down in detail to me is is step one, like a detail of that. And, and so when it comes to the subcontractor side, I don't like vague contractor agreements. And a lot of times you'll see where people say, oh, we're going to do a work share with you. I, I don't like those at all. I like when it says, here are the task areas that you're going to be working on, and you're going to be doing 100% of task areas two, three, and seven, or whatever it may be. Here are your responsibilities in the task areas. Having that just completely spelled out so that they are very clear on that. Now, look, here's the thing that most people totally forget about this is just because you wrote it down and they signed it doesn't mean they read it. So before you sign your agreement with your sub, sit down and review it. Hey, do you agree to these things? You know, do you disagree with any, did you want us to make any changes to this? You know, you, uh, you want to get all your stuff from Lowe's because you've got a Lowe's deal and we usually use Home Depot because that's where our deal is and we get it cheaper. You know, is that going to be a problem for you, right? And I'm just making that one up there. But, you know, there's things like that right, that right. come up and they're genuine problems for people because they're like, well, I don't have an account at, at Home Depot. And this is, you know, and this is going to be a major problem because not everybody can think outside the box when you throw a little monkey wrench into their life, right? And so if you sit down and review the subcontracting agreement and make sure you're on the same page, then you can lock that in with some certainty that once there's an issue, you can go back to the agreement and say, oh, here's what we agreed. You know, I even made this concession for you or whatever it may be. Um, I need you to follow this agreement. You have something you can enforce at that point. That's so beautiful because, you know, it's you're only as good as your subcontractors. And mm -hmm. it's crucial to, to connect and communicate like high level communication is so important because those subcontractors can see you work. You know, mm -hmm. they might not have the body. They might not know how to do the paperwork. Right. So. Right. We, we, treat, we treat our guys so good that, you know, six months later, they're like, hey, we have a deal out here in Hawaii and we'd like to do it for you. 
I'm sure mm. you've you've had some, yeah. something similar yeah. like that happen. Yeah, to you. It, and it's you know it's one of the reasons why you start small as well. So instead of starting off on a twenty million dollar project with a sub you've never met, you know that's basically like going out on the Vegas Strip and picking somebody and going, hey, let's get married, right? Like you have oh, no. no idea what you're getting, right? Yeah. So like you go in and say, hey, let's do this hundred thousand dollar project together. And then even if they screw it up, you can still recover from that. You know, it's just one of those things where you want to start small, build the relationship and then move into bigger things because you may determine that that sub is really great at hundred thousand dollar projects. But when it gets in the five hundred thousand dollar, they can't keep good notes or there's some other issues and like, hey, you know, what? I'm not going to dismiss them, but I'm only going to use them for small stuff because they just they can't handle the stress that comes with a bigger project. Beautiful. Now, before we get into a painful lesson, because you just triggered that when you said that, <laughs> um, I want to ask you a little, a few more technical questions about percentage complete method and how you can front load your construction schedule to, to ensure that you have cash flow. Because you know, having a solid schedule of values and doing it properly can make or break you. Can you elaborate? Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, I I think, um, again, whether it's construction or any other industries, I I think when you're looking at what you're doing, you have to be smart at where the profit is, what you already have staff wise, things like that. So if you know you're going to have to hire people, maybe you don't do that out of the gate. You, You organize the job so that it's the people you already have on the bench that can be put to work first because you're already paying for them. So that's not new money out of your pocket. And you look for ways to do that. Let's focus on areas where we've already got staff in place, product in place, whatever it may be, so that we can, like you use the word, front load this and get some of these, get the checks rolling in basically um, in order to kind of finance this project. So. Now, there are scenarios where the, the, um, the contracting officer just doesn't answer their phone and you need to go do a site visit or you need a technical answer, but they're not answering. What do you do besides sending that, by the way, the brilliant idea of sending that loom, that's the first time I ever heard that. Is there any other tactic that a contractor can do yes. when they need it answered? Yeah. Absolutely. So once you typically in a kickoff meeting, you're going to meet a few other people. You're, you're not going to just meet the contracting officer. You're probably going to meet some sort of PM level person. You'll probably meet a, a core is what they call them, the, the contracting officer representative. You'll meet those people a lot of times. So a lot of times you can go through those people if you need the contracting officer to sign off on something for whatever it may be. You can do that route. Another thing that I kind of mentioned this earlier, when anytime I'm having trouble reaching a contracting officer, I copy the small business rep on it. I, on, on all my communication, because there's something magical that happens. Yeah. Once you start copying the small business rep or the OSDBU, the office of small business, small disadvantaged business utilization. Once you start copying those people on those email threads it's funny how the contracting officers just wake up and start responding to that kind of stuff. So, oh yeah, I forgot. I don't want an ombudsman to happen. Yeah, you know we we you know we just signed this twelve million dollar contract. We need to do the site visit to kick things off, and haven't heard from you in two months. 
<laughs> you know, and then they see this, the small business reps, like what's going on over there. And, and it may be the small business rep that comes back and says, Oh, Susan was in a car accident and in a coma, you know, and like, Oh, you don't need to be, that's going to a, a dead inbox at the moment. No, no pun intended there, but it's going to this inbox where nobody, <laughs> nobody's going to be responding to it. We never even thought about it. Um, you know, Julie is now in charge of that, but she's got, you know, 58 things. So let's get her involved and, and going, you know, um, and, and it's just a matter of, of, to me, one of the biggest lessons that every government contractor needs to learn is you can't get stopped by roadblocks. Like just because the government is in your way doesn't mean you stop. Like you keep working it till you get the answer you need. Doesn't mean you be annoying, but just because Susan isn't answering the phone doesn't mean you stop calling. Like you got You got to find a way around that. Yeah, with when you try something great, you're gonna have curveballs. You're gonna have roadblocks, yeah. and they're going to happen. You just got to see them as an opportunity for growth and a mm -hmm. challenge. Just hey, I got to overcome this. So yep. before we move any further on that topic right there, how can somebody find, if they're a hub zone or a woman's zone, woman owned, how can somebody find this small business rep if they've never reached out to this person? So it's really complicated. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. so I typically just Google like small business office for Fort Hood or small business office for Army or small business office FEMA uh, uh, OSDBU, so the OSDBU, um, pick whatever agency that's as hard as it is. And you'll get a list of names right out of the gate, which by the way, most people don't understand. There's not just small business offices in the government. Guess who else has small business offices? All your large primes, all of your large primes have a small business office. And that is like an entry point. So like, if you're if you notice that, let's say Lockheed Martin or General Dynamics or SAIC or you name it, is on a contract at your agency and you have no idea who to contact, you can't contact their small business office. Say, hey, SAIC small business office, I'm trying to work on this contract. It's the ABCD contract over at Fort Hood. Um, and I don't know who in your organization is in charge of that. Can you put me in charge with the PM? Absolutely. So that is absolutely fire brilliance what you just said it just made me think of something where you need a good contractor you can call the big prime get the estimator on the phone and say hey i'm just a small contractor and i need a good uh paving guy uh who's somebody you could recommend which i've done but i never thought of doing that actually calling the small business to the big prime yeah that's brilliant yeah and if you need if you need contractors like that um, one of the things I do all the time is I'll go in Sam or USA spending. And if it like, say you're, you're the construction guy and you're building the building, but you need a, a, a driveway guy or whatever like that, go in USA spending, put it in the state that you're working in and put in those NAICS codes and you'll find it. It's, it's not, there's, there's, a, there's wow, probably, yeah, there's a lot of ways to find that person. Um, there's no excuse for not being able to find somebody who's already, here's the key, already doing business at your agency. They already know the agency. Okay. okay. So you just opened up a whole can of worms, Michael. Like you just, you, this is the last, one of the last questions I want to ask you is yeah. 
what are some other strategies, techniques, templates, ways to find the absolute best subcontractors to get these jobs done? Yeah, so a lot of people use the the dynamic small business search, you know, that website. Uh, it's got its issues. It, the, and the biggest issue to me for that website is, yes, you will find your Native American WSB, fill in the blank, whatever on that, but you won't see if they're doing business with your agency. I just go into USA spending all the time when I'm looking at something like this. I'll put in the NAICS code or the PSC code. And or if I have the name of somebody that I know there's a, that is a competitor, I'll put their name in there. And I start with USA spending because number one, it's very reliable. You don't have to log in, none of that kind of stuff. You can change your searches on the fly. And then once I find some information in there, a lot of times I'll go in the same databank and, and look for that kind of stuff. But I just started USA spending. And it could be as simple as a keyword, an agency, um, whatever it may be. And I start looking for the companies that, I, that I'm looking for. So, Wow. You are a wizard. I'm really enjoying this, Michael. My last question for you, for a contractor, what are some ways that they could protect a, their construction company once they have the job in the bag, they've got the contract, they're about to start, they've already had the good detailed conversations with the subcontractor? but it's five states away. What are some ways they can protect themselves? So expensive I, yeah, I, I think one of the biggest things is having a really good project manager on staff or managers. I think you need to have somebody very detail oriented who has got a list of everything that's going on, the timelines of everything is supposed to go down and they're not afraid to pick up the phone or hop in a car, hop on a plane, and, and go look at what's going on. You know, you need somebody like that that's really going to be in charge of it and not micromanage it, but literally be on top of everything. Because the worst thing in the world is for you to have radio silence for two, three, four weeks and ask what's going on and go, oh yeah, we had to stop work because fill in the blank. And you didn't know until you asked and it's a month later. You know, you need somebody who's on top of that. And, and that person needs to be trained that, look, whether it's daily, weekly, we need regular reporting from our subs. Here's what that reporting cycle needs to look like. You know, here's all the milestones that you're tracking and all that. But, you know, I don't want to wait till the end of, you know, milestone period one. I want stuff on a daily, weekly basis, whatever it may be. You know, I want a process for handling things that are, um, out of scope. I want a process for handling things that are emergencies or unexpected disasters or, hey, you know what? A hurricane just ripped through Florida. How did that impact the project that we're working on in Florida? The, the biggest thing is you just need a project manager that is on staff that can monitor every detail of the project. And, and they're going to escalate as soon as anything goes off the rails. Love that. That's the truth right there. Now, Michael, you have been through this for over 20 years. You, you've assisted and have facilitated and helped contractors of all different types from technology to construction to win hundreds of millions, if not a billion plus dollars worth of contracts. Mm -hmm. If somebody wants to reach out to you, they want more information, how, how can you help them? And what do you have to offer? Sure. So uh, we work with every kind of government contractor you could ever imagine. We have coaching and training programs. We have an online DIY system called Federal Access. So you can go to federal-access.com 
and learn more about that. You can get started for as little as 29 bucks. And there's all the documents, templates, training videos you'd ever need are all there in federal access for that. And then there's coaching programs. If you want somebody to hold your hand and go through that easy way to get a hold of me, go on the federal access website. There's a contact form on there, or you can go find me on LinkedIn. I'm very easy to find on LinkedIn and, uh, and just shoot me a message there. Michael Lejeune, owner of Game Changer Podcast for Government Contractors. Absolutely crushed it today. Talked about all things construction, all the strategies and templates. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for being on the Real Construction Owners Podcast today, Michael. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it.